Hello church, if you would open to 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Be in verse 12, read through verse 16. This is God's word. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so, Father, what a promise that you gave to David and David through David to us. Lord, I sense a, a real danger for all of us here, Lord, that we would be so distracted with this present kingdom that we would forget the kingdom that is eternal, the only kingdom that will last forever. And so, Lord, we pray that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, wake us up to these realities. Lord, if Your Word is true, Lord, that You would, you would break through our distractedness with so many things that are temporary and fleeting. And You would remind us of those things that matter most. Lord, we ask You to do this for Your name's sake and that our lives could bring You more glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in uh, the fourth week of this Advent uh, series and trying to cover uh, the whole of the Old Testament in five weeks. Uh, this is the fourth of five. Uh, you'll remember that we uh, began looking at the covenant of works with Adam in the garden, which led to, uh, well, we skipped the, no, the Noahic covenant, it's very similar to that first covenant, uh, moved into the Abrahamic covenant uh, with Pastor Kent, and then uh, last week the Mosaic, this week we get to the Davidic covenant, uh, which will lead us then up to Christmas, which will be what we'll call the covenant of redemption uh, that we'll deal with next week. Uh, the Davidic covenant is really important. Um, I think we've said that with every one of these covenants so far. They all are actually really important. Um, this one is no exception. Uh, because if you think back, the covenant of works, if you understand the covenant of works with Adam in the garden, and then you understand the last Adam that it talks about in the New Testament, you get the Bible, the story of the Bible in large part. Um, when you understand the Abrahamic covenant, you're not only understanding a bit of Israel's history, 
uh, because Abraham is our father. He was saved the same way we are to be saved, by faith in the promised Savior. And then uh, if we look at the Mosaic Covenant as we did last week, we see this righteous standard is absolutely impossible for us to meet. That We will never make it to heaven or be right before God according to the law unless someone comes and fulfills that law for us and then gives us that standard of righteousness and Christ becomes our law keeper. And so all these are, are massively important and I say now about the Davidic, uh, this one is absolutely essential. If you don't understand David, you don't understand Christ. Okay, that's the most, that's the simplest way to put it. Um, you, if, if you want a rich biblical Christology, you need to understand David, especially uh, the Davidic covenant made with David. Uh, the Puritan John Ball said, Christ is manifested to David more clearly than any other covenant administration. William Gouge, another Puritan, uh, said this, If anything good is spoken of David, it is because he is a type of Christ. And we say, well, but David had sin. Some terrible sin. Well, he's not like Christ in those ways. But in the ways that he is righteous, he is like Christ. And um, think of even the Messianic Psalms. You know, G David um, says many things that Christ then says, and we call these Messianic Psalms. And let me ask you about those. Uh, who wrote them? David wrote them. Did he write them about his own life? About his own struggles and victories? Or were they written about Christ's struggles and victories? Well, it's both. David wrote about his own struggles, and then he wrote, and then Christ quoted those, and those were actually about Christ's struggles. And so when David speaks of his own friend coming against him, who's he talking about? He's talking about King Saul. But then Christ later quotes those exact same psalms, and he's talking about Judas. Well, which one was it original? Which one was it for? Saul or Judas? Answer: Both. Uh, that's how we are to understand these messianic psalms. So the more we understand David, the more we understand Christ. Uh, because David is, according to many of the older preachers, the older theologians, the ultimate Christ figure. The ultimate Christ figure. More than Abraham, more than Moses, more than Solomon, more than uh, Joshua. The ultimate, and I'm going to emphasize this with human Christ figure, because there is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is an interesting one. Uh, we were uh, having a discussion about this at our breakfast table uh, with the kids uh, the other day before school. Uh, do you all talk about that stuff over <laughs> bagels uh, in the morning? Um, I mean, why not? Uh, what else are we going to talk about at 7 a.m.? Um, but Melchizedek is important, and it says this in Hebrews 7 about Melchizedek. He is a king and a priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth. So Abraham tithed a tenth to Melchizedek, this priest king figure. 
whose name means king of righteousness. That's what the name Melchizedek means. And he actually was, his occupation uh, was king of Salem, that means king of peace. So he's called king of righteousness, he's called king of peace. Those are titles that Christ holds. Uh, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, and therefore resembling the Son of God. That's a quote from uh, Hebrews 7. And then it says he is a priest forever. A priest forever. Now, the Levitical priests were priests for how long? Maybe a 30-year career? But Melchizedek was a priest forever, and Christ is a priest like that type of priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so you go, well, Melchizedek must be the ultimate Christ figure. He's a priest forever like Christ. He's a king. He doesn't have a beginning or end. This man seems very much like a a pre-Christ figure. And I would submit to you, he is not the ultimate Christ figure of the Old Testament because the New Testament authors bring his name up one time. That is in one passage, Hebrews 7 is the only time Melchizedek is brought up. But do you know who they bring up over and over and over again? These are men trained by Jesus, the apostles, to understand the Old Testament types and shadows. These are men inspired by the Holy Spirit. They do not keep mentioning Melchizedek, but they keep mentioning David and calling Jesus the son of David, which tells us David is the ultimate human prototype of Christ or type of Christ to come. So as we come to the Davidic covenant, um, it, it, I, I don't want to just jump into uh, all the things that God says to David uh, without, I think we would miss the context, it wouldn't make as much sense. So let's, let's get the context, and there's a, there's a broad context and a more narrow context. The broad context, we could really go back to eternity past, the Father and the Son, they had the Davidic covenant in mind, we could go back that far, we won't. Um, we could go back to the Garden of Eden. And we could think about the Davidic covenant in that context. We could go back to Abraham and the promises made to Abraham. We could go back to uh, Moses and the things God said to Moses. All of that is context for the Davidic kingdom. But if you narrow the context, a more narrow context would be Joshua. Uh, Joshua was, as you know, a, a leader in Israel of the what we will call the true holy wars. Not those medieval uh, holy wars in the Middle Ages, but uh, the true holy wars that God, through Joshua in Israel's army, established a kingdom among all these pagan uh, godless nations. God was establishing a kingdom through Joshua until Israel began to do what? Turn and worship idols and false gods, and then God stopped fighting for Israel. Because Israel would no longer keep the Mosaic law and keep uh, the Mosaic covenant and turn to worship other, other gods, God stopped fighting for them. And then God began to bring judgment upon His own people and confusion upon His own people. And this is critical. This is critical right here uh, that we get 
this pivotal moment in, in Joshua 21, 25, it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now hear this connection. Because Israel failed to obey God's law, disregarded, ignored the Mosaic law, they're unable to enter the land of promise. They're unable to receive this kingdom. And so what does Israel do? Do they repent of their sins and go, Lord, we're sorry, we've neglected your word, we're going to now centralize your word again? No. They begin to look around at all these pagan nations and then begin to see, why are they so successful and happy and powerful and we're sitting here miserable? Ah, they have kings. They all have kings. We need a king. We want a king who will give us a, a lower standard of morality that isn't so restrictive, maybe more progressive, we could say. Uh, one, a, a king who will lead us in battle and help us establish this kingdom. And church, I'll, I'll tell you, if you ever hear anybody who says that, uh, that Israel wanted a king because a king would help them obey God's law, tell that person to go back and read their Bible again, especially 1 Samuel, because that is not what happened. This is not a pure desire in, in Israel for a king um, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. When everybody does, and we know what this is like, don't we? I mean, this is America. Everybody's trying to do what's right in their own eyes. You don't want one objective standard of morality that's over and above everyone to which everyone's accountable. You don't want that because you want to be that. All right? That's what Israel was like. They aren't trying to get a king so the king can go, okay, let's reestablish uh, God's word above us and let's all come under it and let's, let's make sure our sexuality lines up and, and marriage lines up and uh, when we rest and work lines up with the word of God. Let's make sure we reorder our whole lives according to this book. Can we get a king who will make sure that this happens not just in the temple but in all aspects of society? That's not what they wanted. That's not what they wanted. I said, get a king like these other nations because we want him to do at least two things for us. He will help us militarily to fight and conquer the nations needed so that the kingdom can be established. The one promised to Abraham that we deserve, that we want. A king can help us get that land of promise. And a king can reorder society according to a different standard of morality rather than God's. That's what Israel wanted. Sam Renahan said this, the people don't just want a king, they want a king like all the nation's kings. One who will not just fight for them, but create new laws. They want a new religion with a new authority. They don't want a king to lead under God. They want a king to lead them away from and apart from God. They wanted a king after their own heart. And we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that uh, the Amalekites come to threaten them, and they say to Samuel, we want a king to fight for us. And God says this to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. 
They're rejecting me. Give them the king they want. His name is Saul. And King Saul is what? He's God's judgment on Israel at that time. So the problem was not Israel having a king. It was the type of king that Israel wanted. They wanted a king who would lower the bar, who would not enforce God's standard of morality. And God says, uh, you can have him. His name is Saul. And they quickly found out that was not a blessing. That was God's judgment on them. Now, let me back up because it's important we remember, it's not that God is against the idea of a king. There's no problem with having a king. Uh, We know this because 300 years before Israel had a king, in Deuteronomy, uh, this is said, Deuteronomy 17, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. So God's telling them what they're about to say 300 years earlier. You may indeed set a king over you, over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So God says, I'm not against a king, but it needs to be who I choose, not who you want. One from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. The king shall read from the book of the law all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God in keeping all the words of his law, these statutes and doing them. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom. So you see, the the problem isn't a monarch. God isn't against a monarch. Um. You could even take this back a step further uh, to the Garden of Eden. God gives creation a man to be a ruler over the world. That was Adam. God isn't against the system of government where you have one man over a nation. That hierarchical system is not, God isn't against that. He's for it uh, if it's the right leader with the right moral standard. Now, let me back off this for just a second, just because this is a, a kind of a foreign thing. I mean, we're Americans. Um, we don't think like this typically. I think of our own nation, how uh, in a perfect world, our forefathers wouldn't have designed America judicially the way they did. In a perfect world. We know that, right? The way that America is structured is not perfect. It's, it's just In light of the fact that we're sinners and and, and everybody's fallen, even the best of the leaders you could ever put in power are fallen, they built it acknowledging that reality, understanding that reality. So a democracy or a constitutional republic is not ideal in a perfect world. A monarch is. And our modern Western uh, idea of a king and kingdom, I mean, this is just so foreign to us. Conceptually, literally, I mean, we just, it's very difficult to comprehend how a king could be a good thing or a monarch could be a good thing. But our forefathers were wise. They actually were wise. Not perfect, uh, not godly at many points, but they were wise in, un- in understanding 
uh, how humanity actually is fallen. And so they said, we need to do a few things. We need to take ultimate, supreme, unchecked power and authority away from one man, and we need to distribute it into a constitution. And, and yet we know that constitution will eventually be tampered with. And so we need to divide up more power into a Supreme Court and into a judicial uh, levels of judicial authority and then into uh, Congress and states and on and on. And so you have this uh, America being designed and structured like that, not because that's the ideal system of government structure, but because we're sinners. And any leader we put and give ultimate supreme authority to uh, will be corrupt at some level. Now, but what what if you get the right leader? And and maybe not right in the sense of uh, the best, but a perfect leader. One who has no capacity for corruption. One who is completely selfless. And does what is best for the people under him. What if you actually had a perfect leader with a perfect standard of righteousness? Now that is the best governmental structure that you could have. And that's what happened in Genesis 2. Before sin entered the world, again in the law, Deuteronomy 17, you have how a king was to be appointed in Israel. And then in 1 Samuel 8, uh, they demand a king but they demand a king wrongly. So get the order and the logic here. God is the king of Israel, ruling over them with a righteous law, fighting their battles for them, and they reject God, and they reject his kingship because they wanted a king like the pagan kings, a king like Saul. And God in his mercy gave them that king so they could see that's not how it should work, and then In his mercy, he gives them a good king who is David. And David was a blessing to Israel. And all this leads up to the Davidic covenant. And um, if you're not turned to 2 Samuel 7, please do. Uh, As you turn there, it's a very frustrating week of sermon prep for me, uh, looking at this topic of the Davidic kingdom, because about 90% of what I studied, I couldn't include. (laughs) This is so much uh, to be said about the Davidic covenant that we just will not be able to get to. But let me just quote a few people at how important this covenant is. Ronald Youngblood uh, understood 2 Samuel 7. Okay, 2 Samuel 7 is where we see the Davidic covenant. He says it's the center and focus of the uh, Deuteronomic history itself. Walter uh, Bregenman regards it as the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7. Robert Gordon called this chapter the ideological summit of the Old Testament as a whole. John Livingston contended that God's covenant with David receives more attention in the Hebrew Bible than any covenant except the Mosaic. And then listen to Walter Kaiser. He, uh, he said, there's five great moments in redemptive history. The promise given in the garden after the fall. Uh, The promise given to Abraham in Genesis. The promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7. The promise given to Jeremiah about the coming new covenant. And then when all those things 
came to fruition in the death and resurrection of Christ. Those are the most pivotal moments in the Bible. And so we are looking at something very significant. Let's read this again. Verse 12 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, God is saying this to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, from whom shall come from your own body, so your own son, David, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And listen to verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, again, uh, I really would love to approach this how the old Christians, preachers, the theologians did. That if you if you go back to the uh, to the the Puritans and the Reformers and the early confessions, they talk about the Davidic covenant and they do it in three categories that I think are really helpful: the kingdom of power, the kingdom of grace, and the kingdom of glory. And we just that sounds like a simple way to go through this. It's actually not. It's actually very complex and nuanced. And I thought, this is an Advent sermon. We're not, we just don't need to do that. Uh, we're going to put this in two uh, categories uh, that I think will be simpler. So, number one, the Davidic covenant already fulfilled by Christ in the first Advent. And then we'll look at the Davidic covenant not yet fully fulfilled by Christ until the second, uh, second Advent or Christ's second coming. And so again... The Davidic covenant has no significance at all unless it leads us to Christ. Unless it teaches us about Christ. It only holds value in its relation to Christ and as being a type of Christ's eternal kingdom. So let's look at this first thing. The Davidic covenant fulfilled in part at the first advent. Uh, Let's look back at our chapter here, chapter 7, 2 Samuel, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you, and you shall come, he shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build for my house a name. I will, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, does that jump out at you as odd? If it's about Christ... When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So here's the big thing. When When you're looking at not just this issue, but any Old Testament prophecy, the best way to, to think about Old Testament prophecy is in layers. I find this to be extremely helpful. At one level, this is about Solomon. Okay? David, Solomon is David's son. This is about Solomon becoming king. This is about how God will treat Solomon. So at one level, when he says, I will, when he commits iniquity, that's not talking about Jesus. That's talking about Solomon. 
And it was fulfilled in Solomon. That's true. But at another level, something more than Solomon is being talked about here because Jesus is repeatedly called the son of David. The son of David. It's not Solomon. You see how how two things can be conveyed in this same passage. And this is the standard Christian belief. This is not a a weird view that I'm proposing here. This is very standard. uh, That the first, this promise or the Davidic covenant was first fulfilled uh, in Solomon. He built the temple, as it says here. He had the kingdom after David. That's true. But the promise is also to be fulfilled in David's future son. Listen, who David calls Lord. And this becomes very, very significant. Uh, If you'll turn quickly to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is a very, very important passage because the New Testament authors quote this psalm more than any other. We may think that Psalm Psalm, uh, 23 is the most popular psalm. It may be to Americans, but it wasn't to the early church or the apostolic authors. They quoted Psalm 110, verse 1. It says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. look, Look at this. The Lord said to my Lord, David is writing this, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make an enemy as a footstool for your feet. So David longed for, for the fulfillment of, the prom, of this promise in a son whom he called Lord. David's Lord, who happened to be his future son, would put all his enemies under his feet. The New Testament authors understood Psalm 110 to be about Jesus. The New Testament authors understood Psalm 110 to be about Jesus. How do we know this? How did they think this passage is about Jesus? Well, because Jesus said it was about him. He said it was about him in Matthew 22. Verse 42, Jesus asked when the Pharisees came to him with this question, or came to him with questions, they're trying to debate with Christ, back him in a corner, and then Christ says, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said, correctly, the son of David. And then he said this, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? saying, the Lord said to my Lord, now he's quoting Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, until I put your enemies under your feet. And then listen to what Jesus says. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So if it's Solomon, was Solomon his Lord? That's his son. And then when Jesus asked them this, It follows by saying, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. So, (laughs) all of his theological debates with the Pharisees were done at that moment. I mean, that was the end-all debate between the Pharisees. Jesus says, 
David calls his son Lord. David calls his son Lord. That's what Jesus is pressing them on. David is calling his son Lord. And what's Jesus doing? He's saying, Solomon isn't the one that's being talked about, ultimately. He's trying to get them to see, I'm the Davidic son. I'm the one David was talking about, who is both his son and his Lord. And they didn't want to receive it. Uh, We sing this old hymn, really awesome hymn. I know some of these hymns got to grow on us. They, they don't seem awesome at first, but stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Right? That's the title, and that's in there uh, in one of the verses. But then it says this, this long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. That's a glorious little phrase. David's son, yet David's Lord. And look at it in, in Samuel again. Verse 12, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So Jesus is pressing the Pharisees saying, I am he. He who? The son of David. And the son of God. I am the son of David. I am rightful heir legally, judicially, by bloodline, to the throne of David. That is me. And I am the fulfiller of of this verse which says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. God saying that. And he claims all of it is about himself. Guys, this is is not a small little niche thing in the New Testament. This is all over the place. In the the four Gospels, you read about this all the time. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, are all talking about Jesus being both God's Son and David's Son. Son of David, Son of God. Son of David, Son of God. The beginning of Matthew, in the genealogy, it begins to make the same point. Jesus is, by blood, the Davidic, in the Davidic line, genetically, biologically, physically, legally, the heir of David's throne. That's the argument it starts with the Gospel of Matthew. And then it shifts and said, oh yeah, and he's the Son of God. Which is a fulfillment of this promise. Hebrews 1.5 quotes Psalm 110 and calls Christ the Son of David. Romans 1 3, 1 Corinthians 15 25, all talk about Christ being the Davidic king. And I, I, I need to clear, clarify one thing here. Um, I said last week that uh, the Davidic covenant is an uh, unconditional covenant. Uh, that's partly true, partly not true. Um, there are parts of the Davidic covenant that are unconditional, and there are parts that are conditional. Here, here's what I mean. Jesus, the Messiah could not just be of the line of David. That's not all this covenant is about. Uh, He also had to be the son of God. This is a a father-son covenant. And the only way for it to be truly fulfilled is that there would be a truly obedient son. So someone being king who's of the Davidic bloodline isn't a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. Someone uh, who perfectly led 
as a king under the Mosaic law was not a a perfect fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. Someone uh, who's even a son of Yahweh is not a perfect fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. They must also be all those things plus an obedient son to the father. You see how narrow this begins to get. I mean, who could qualify? Do we have any names? Anybody know uh, who, who this could be? It's getting narrow here. Listen to this prophecy. Put yourself back 700 years B.C. Uh, the Israelites are reading Isaiah 9, verse 6. It says, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. A son is born, son of God, son of David. That's who it had to be. That's who the Messiah was to be. And imagine getting a birth announcement 700 years before the birth. I mean, we, sometimes people think they sent out an early birth announcement on Facebook because it was like a few weeks earlier than maybe was, they thought they should. 700 years before. I think Facebook's only like 15 years old. <laughs> All right, 700 year early birth announcement Not just naming the location of the birth, the name of the child, the location, the the timing, all these things, but all of the things that that child would accomplish in detail. 355 prophecies were told about what this child would accomplish, and Christ has fulfilled all 355 messianic prophecies. Listen to uh, Luke 1. This is what the angel says to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called, listen, Son of the Most High. Son of God. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Son of God, Son of David, come to set up an eternal kingdom and when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, what does he begin to preach? Repent for the kingdom is at hand. The king has shown up, yes, first as a baby, but then his earthly ministry saying, I'm here to establish a kingdom. I'm the rightful heir of the Davidic throne. I am the very son of God and I have come to set up my kingdom. Repent. You will stand before me. You will give an account. He takes absolute authority as the king, not over the land of Judea. Not, he, he, he's not establishing self, himself as some sort of ancient tribal deity. A, a, a king over a little ancient tribal deity. You know, some of these kings, they were like a king over certain regions or certain tribes and, uh, and, and over the gods of those tribes. Jesus puts himself forward as the king over kings, the king over kingdoms. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And I'm sorry, anybody who, who thinks that Christ's kingdom rule will only begin once the rapture has happened, or during a, a thousand-year millennial reign that we aren't in yet, needs to go back and reread this. Because it seems Christ is quite clear, the kingdom is now, when he sets foot on earth in his incarnation. That's when he set up his kingdom. First advent. So, second advent, second coming of Christ, kingdom finished. He comes back and establishes it all. We live in this time where he's ruling and reigning. And his kingdom has already been established. He said over and over, present tense, the kingdom is among you. Right now. Not way, way, way off in the future somewhere. Now. Listen to the past present tense in these verses. Colossians 1.13 He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, transferred, past tense, us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's what conversion is. Hebrews 12.28 let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A present tense ongoing receive for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so here's the kind of uh, the classical, standard, traditional way to understand the kingdom uh, in, until some newer views have arisen lately in the last 120 years or so that Jesus inaugurated and began His kingdom in His incarnation. When He came down as a baby and was born, the King has come. In His ministry, He begins to establish that kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He begins to establish this kingdom. In His life and into His death, into His resurrection, He then begins, He's already ruling and reigning. Uh, he ascends right back to the, to the right hand of the Father, sends the Spirit upon His church. The church is advancing His kingdom on earth through the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit as we continue to do. And then He will fully establish and complete His kingdom when all the elect from every nation have been brought in, all have bowed. He will judge His enemies. He will establish the new heaven and the new earth where he and his church will rule and reign with him forever. It's an already, it's a not yet reality. And it is that, that word forever is significant and goes back to that final step of the Davidic covenant. This is the part of the Davidic covenant that isn't fulfilled yet. We're not in that forever kingdom fully. We're waiting, like Israel waited, for that second advent when Christ will come. So here, here's the, uh, maybe the application of this to us. Very, very brief. Um, the church talks about uh, the kingdom of God in, in military terms. Or has historically talked about the church in military terms. So uh, we talk about we, we must advance the kingdom of Christ on earth. That's why we're, what we're left here to do. He could just take us up to heaven when we get saved, but he leaves us here. We say, well, that's so that we'll be sanctified and we'll become more like Christ. Well, true. 
but it's also that we advance his kingdom. We have kingdom advance to be doing. And so the church militant is the first way that people discuss this. The church militant is his kingdom people on earth advancing his kingdom by the spirit through the gospel, which leads to eventually the church triumphant where his kingdom people in heaven are at rest, finished their course, fought the good fight of faith, have been taking kingdoms for Christ. Guys, listen, even in their suffering and in their death, they're told what? They are conquerors. They have conquered with Christ. This is glorious. There's much more to unpack. We have a king who sits at the right hand of the Father right now. He knows us. He sees us. I think he rejoices in us coming to the table to remember what he's accomplished for us. Uh, Let me say to those of you who uh, will not be coming to the table, uh, there is a red folder or a red bulletin that you should have got when you come in here. There's some meaningful prayers in there uh, that you can pray during this time. And then as well, let me just say to those of you who have not recognized uh, the King of Kings. Those of you who have not recognized the King of Kings, there is a day that we will stand before Him. And the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it is imperative that we prepare our hearts and our lives for that day. And this table is a weekly opportunity to do that. To reflect on our lives and more so to reflect on what Christ has done for us. And so church, please don't come up to the table mindlessly, carelessly, thoughtlessly. Come recognizing that Christ not only died for sins, He ascended to heaven. He's overcome all of our enemies and He will come again. Uh, This table is for those who are baptized and those who are uh, believing and trusting in Christ. Please come to the table uh, when you're ready. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, um, we so desperately needed You to come down to this earth. We are lost and hopeless without a Savior. You did this for our sake. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You say that we did not love You, but You loved us and sent Your Son. And so, Father, we praise You. We thank You for this, Lord. We pray, Father, that we would remember this week and it would actually affect affect choices we make and the ways that we live and the words that we say that You are enthroned in heaven as the Davidic King above all. And Lord, we pray that we would be a people and a church that are found advancing Your kingdom through Your Gospel on this earth until You return.
Come, Lord Jesus. We expect a second advent. We need a second advent. So Lord, would You prepare our hearts even now. Refocus our minds even now on the work that You continue to do and that You will do when You bring all things to an end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.